our last speaker of the uh, spring season uh, this afternoon is, is Robert Fulford from the British Library, who will be talking about the events which led to the founding of the British Library in the early 1970s. Those of you who are uh, friends of the Book Arts Press will be receiving a mailing in a week or two uh, discussing the summer lecture series, which is rapidly approaching and rapidly filling up. The first date, however, to remind you again of that series is Monday, May 19th, if Monday is May 19th. Monday, May 18th. Uh, which will be a double series with Joseph Viscomi, professor of uh, humanities, I think he is, at uh, VPI, coming to give a lecture at 6 o'clock on uh, the workshop of William Blake and to give a workshop at 4 o'clock doing uh, both relief and intaglio plates the way one supposes uh, and the way Mr. Viscomi supposes is better than the way most of us suppose. Mr. Uh, Blake himself did it. That's at 4 o'clock and at 6 o'clock on the first day of summer session. Uh, summer school was spring school at Columbia, May 18th. Otherwise, uh, except to hope that all of you will join us for an informal reception uh, for the usual and the usual after this lecture in room 502, uh, I have only to ask you to welcome Mr. Fulford. Thank you. Um, I think I will begin by apologizing for telling at least some of you some facts which you already well know. But it seemed to me that in order to explain how we got from there to here, or from then to now, uh, it's necessary to give at least a general conspectus of uh, the library from the beginning. And I should perhaps start by explaining what my own position is. Uh, Keeper of printed books is a slightly mysterious title, perhaps, and what it means is the collection is that I'm in charge of the collection of printed books which is associated with the services grouped round the main reading room in the British Museum, the North Library, the documents reading room and so on and so forth. That, uh, from that viewpoint uh, I will explain where I think we stand in the context of where we stood before under the British, British Museum. Now, the Department of Printed Books, or the collections of the British Museum Library, if you like to still put it that way, are over 200 years old, but this doesn't make them the oldest library in Britain by a long way even though from the 19th century onwards it was the biggest collection. Oxford and Cambridge universities were founded in the Middle Ages and the Bodleian and Cambridge University Library 
are some 200 years or more older than the British Museum Library. Uh, similarly, the four original Scottish universities were all founded together with their libraries 200 years or more before the British Museum. The British Museum came into being in the 1750s and was and grew up round a number of foundation collections like the Cotton, the Sloan and so on which not only included books and manuscripts but museum objects as well and even at that time botanical and zoological specimens. Those last went to the Natural History Museum in the 1880s and I needn't mention them again. So the collection of antiquities and books and manuscripts which came together in the 1750s was an accidental collection of various private people's um, uh, enthusiasms and collecting abilities. And this is the situation that remained for nearly a hundred years. Right into the 19th century, the British Museum Library was an accidental collection which, although when added together, made something, made a really significant collection, did not represent anything systematic. Then, in the 19th century, things began to change. The last great element in the old order was the presentation to the library of King George III's library in the early years of his successor, George IV. And those of you who visited the museum will know of the King's Library, which was specially built to house that collection, and still does. And it's still a working part of the library, with 100 to 120 books being called for every day. Then, further into the 19th century, Sir Anthony Panizzi came onto the scene and gave the library, essentially, its present character. He began to see that the Copyright Act was enforced and the British archival collection begins to be really comprehensive from the 30s and 40s of the 19th century. In 1834, and I think Panizzi's European background may be partly responsible for the continuation of these attitudes. In 1834, there began the systematic combing of publishers' lists and information about new publications, not just in Britain, but throughout the world. The world in those days meaning essentially Western Europe, though Henry Stevens, of course, is very well known in our history and was responsible for putting together the uh, fine collection of Americana which we have up to the time of his, dis uh, of his death. Panizzi also uh, was more than anybody responsible for the construction of the present reading room, which uh, many or most of you have probably seen. 
and the stacks round it, of which one quadrant, the southeast quadrant, is still recognisably in its original form. Those of you who've been taken behind the scenes will remember it. This part of the library was notable as one of the first cast iron buildings uh, in the 19th century and those of you who have seen it will remember the mode of construction with the glass roof and the slatted floors the idea being that daylight could come down to the lowest floor uh, as long as possible on a winter afternoon electric light didn't of course come until some 50 years later so it was the 19th century that laid the foundations of the library as we now know it and uh, it wasn't really until the most recent times that any serious questioning or change of policy was considered that doesn't mean that the 19th century the rest of the 19th century wasn't eventful and one of the most important things that happened in the 19th and early 20th century was the series of publications of the catalogue of printed books which of course uh, is used uh, universally as a kind of approximation of a world bibliography up to the time when the NUC becomes more comprehensive say around about 1900 though you will find in it right up to the present time items which uh, do not appear in the NUC so the catalogue was first published in the 1890s and the various editions are known uh, familiarly as GK followed by the number um, GK1 came out in the 1890s and has long since been superseded but the rest 2, 3 and 4 can all be found still being used in libraries all over the world and I'll just run through briefly what they are GK2 was an attempt in the early 30s to revise and publish the whole catalogue that is to revise the bibliographic records according to present day standards and uh, to publish them this was done under a scheme which perhaps had something in common with the WPA over here is a time of depression and it was intended to give employment to a small number of graduates now as you many of you know it got off the ground in the 30s it was uh, almost came to a standstill during the war it was resumed after the war but then by the early 50s when it had got to about Dickens it was realised that the amount by which the catalogue was growing was more than the amount which could be re-edited by the given number of people and so Sir Frank Francis the then head of the department decided that uh, a clean break must be made and the result was G GK3 which is the most familiar of all the editions 
the large blue volumes which I'm sure many of you know and probably use. This came out in 263 volumes uh, in the late 50s and early 60s and since then there have been three accumulations of acquisitions. Um, at this point it's necessary to go slightly out of the chronology because there is also another publication sometimes known as GK4 and that is the Zauer edition of in a single alphabetical sequence of the catalogue GK3 and its supplements. Uh, many of you probably have this in your libraries. It's in blue by um, red binding instead of blue and it uh, has got to the beginning of letter D. Um, the other catalogues have also been published in recent uh, years, the catalogues of special collections. The catalogue of maps came out some dozen years ago, catalogue of newspapers more recently, and again, thanks to Zara, the catalogue of printed music is just beginning to appear. Some of you may have seen volume one, which came out uh, round about Christmas time, and as the project gathers momentum, there will be some 62 volumes over the next few years. Now, going back to the story of the institution as a whole, it's not surprising that to those of you who know the building in which it's at present housed that we've been agitating for a new building, especially for the library, for many years. And in fact, this agitation started in the 20s and 30s and then uh, naturally abated somewhat in wartime conditions, but then gathered momentum again in the 50s. And in fact, in 1962, a fully-fledged and completed building plan was made ready to be executed on a site opposite the main British Museum building in Great Russell Street. This, of course, cost a lot of money, or was going to cost a lot of money. And uh, because we're a tax-funded institution, the politicians, of course, are always careful when somebody asks them for many millions of pounds and uh, I think they wanted reassurance that the money would be well spent. At the same time, there was some feeling generated amongst librarians that the British Museum Library, although the largest in the country, wasn't playing a full part in the library development and library services of the country and uh, there was a feeling among many people that this should be uh, officially looked into. So the outcome of this was the setting up in the 60s of the so-called Dainton Committee, named after the name of the chairman, Professor Fred Dainton, then Vice-Chancellor of, I think it was Nottingham University at that time, 
and a chemist by training and uh, a well-known public figure and his brief was firstly to look at the case for a new building for the British Museum Library and secondly to consider the position of other tax-funded library services in relation to the British Museum and after due deliberation in 1968 the so-called Dayton Report appeared which contained two major recommendations one was that the case for a new building was fully justified the second was that the library departments of the British Museum would serve the public much better if they were linked with a number of other library services also provided by the taxpayer on the grounds that uh, to put it in a simplistic way the sum of the parts uh, would be more than the institution separately could achieve so the other institutions which Dainton looked at were the National Lending Library at Boston Spa the National Central Library the Science Reference Library and the British National Bibliography which was not actually tax funded but it received a number of subventions from the government for research and in order to understand the change of environment which uh, this implied it's necessary to say something about these organisations uh, but before I do I'll just explain what the outcome of the Dayton report was uh, it came out in 1968 and shortly afterwards a, uh, a so-called organising committee was set up for the British Library to look at the administrative details of welding these very different institutions into a single whole uh, it was necessary for Parliament to pass a bill setting up the British Library which it did in 1972 and I think one of the successors of the powers that be or the government was in drafting this bill because it consists of only two pages and gives the British Library Board freedom to do almost what it likes within certain limits of course uh, this is in contrast to the statutes of some other national libraries which run into 50 or 100 pages and go into the greatest detail specifying what the library is and is not allowed to do what the staffing positions will be how the finances will be run and so on and so forth our bill the British Library Act as I say is only two pages and uh, is a great success in that it's never prevented us from doing what we want to do so as I say uh, Dainton Dainton's recommendations were embodied in this act in 1972 and the British Library formally came into being on July the 1st 1973 
uh, not quite as Dainton had recommended and I suppose the most important difference from where I sit is that Dainton recommended that four museum departments should go to, into the British Library and in the event only three came that's the Department of Printed Books the biggest library department the Department of Manuscripts meaning Western Manuscripts and the Department of Oriental Manuscripts and Printed Books Dainton had recommended that the Department of Prints and Drawings should also be included but as a result of agitation behind the scenes by various people the Department of Prints and Drawings was eventually left out of the British Library Act and will remain part of the British Museum indefinitely so unlike uh, some other national libraries we won't have the national collection of prints and drawings so to go back to the other institutions you'll realize that this was an enormous psychological change when I describe what they were because hitherto the Department of Printed Books had been one of a dozen museum departments all of which were concerned with the preservation and study of antiquities now the library found itself part even though the largest part of an organization which was intended to be a modern national library service covering all subjects and as far as possible the whole population so the other organizations which came into the British Library at the same time as uh, um, the three British Museum departments were first of all the National Lending Library. Now this had been set up in the 60s and is probably better known by its geographical location, Boston Spa, because of a good many American libraries even have found it advantageous to use their services the original purpose was to serve industry and later science and technology generally and the theory was that the needs of industry would be better served by a single location using the post office to send out either copies or photocopies to customers and that this was a more efficient way of dealing with interlibrary loan than the traditional means of union catalogues and so on um, some librarians were rather shocked to discover that the National Lending Library didn't believe in catalogues and never had one the theory being and of course you have to remember that they're dealing with technical literature the theory being that you arrange your material on the shelf on the shelf in a particular order normally title and it's either there or it isn't there when somebody asks for it and uh, the, the fact that it might be in the catalogue doesn't help you if it's not on the shelf uh, this was considered rather shocking and uh, nevertheless I suppose within 
the objectives which it set itself, it came to be recognized as an important service and began to be used not just within Great Britain but in Europe and in other continents as well. So that was the second major component of the British Library and you'll see from my description of it that it was uh, a, a totally different sort of animal. The, sec the third uh, one was the National Central Library which uh, was located in London and uh, was an interlibrary loan organization of the traditional kind. In other words, using union catalogues and having a collection of its own as well. And uh, it was particularly intended and indeed did deal with the humanities and social sciences while the NLL at Boston Spa dealt with science and technology. Another element was the Science Reference Library, which grew out of the Patent Office Library, which in turn had been the first op open access, uh, freely available library in the sciences to be set up in the country. I think its foundation goes back to something like 1855. Um, this again was a different kind of animal again because it was a large open access library covering most sciences and technologies but having at its core the collection of British and foreign patents so that Dainton did in fact recommend that it should be renamed the Central patent and technical collection or some such phrase in the end it wasn't adopted but uh, that shows the light in which it was seen and then lastly there is the British National Bibliography which wasn't actually a tax funded organisation it was what we call a non-profit making company uh, I, I think you can guess what that means although your phrase for it may be different uh, it uh, was founded in 1950 to produce the British National Bibliography which I'm sure many of you know and uh, its first 15 years had been <coughs> uneventful uh, though nevertheless quite successful in that it had established this publication as a valuable library tool and uh, it was all set fair to continue indefinitely but in the 60s, it had begun to take on another role. It had become, with help from government research funds, the major centre in Britain for the study and development of computerization of bibliographic records. And uh, the senior staff of the BNB worked in close collaboration with Henriette Avram at the Library of Congress and other enthusiasts in the United States who were responsible in those early days for laying the foundations of what has since become the established international mark system. So, although there was no necessity for the British Library to take on the BNB, it was thought to be a good thing for two reasons. One, 
because the technical know-how which it was thought they possessed would somehow seed the whole of the organization and uh, help point the way to a use of computerization in bibliographic records. Secondly, it was hoped to, uh, uh, as one of the early measures of the British Library, to abolish the duplicate cataloguing of British books because they all they were all catalogued for the BNB and then all catalogued again for the British Museum catalogue. And I should perhaps say in parenthesis, though it's an obvious point, that the British Museum catalogue predates AACR and therefore was constructed according to what, by modern lights, would be a non-standard system. So there were those two powerful reasons for bringing the uh, BNB into the British Library. And that really was where we all stood in around about 74 and 75 because, of course, as you can imagine, with such a disparate and different collection of institutions, a lot of the energy in the early days went into purely administrative tasks of laying the foundations of a single budgetary system. Um, a single staff uh, organization system and so on and so forth so uh, a lot of the energies as I say were taken up in these purely uh, bread and butter matters uh, which didn't show very much publicly but were necessary in order to be able to get any further nevertheless a number of important things have happened since the British library came into being and uh, that's what I propose to talk about in the rest of the time um, and I think you'll appreciate from what I say that the move of the Department of Printed Books from the umbrella of the British Museum to the umbrella of the British Library is having quite important effects and is bound to have even more profound effects in the future. Though the collection itself, of course, has essentially already taken on its defined character. Um, although we uh, enhance the collection of earlier books, it stands to reason that uh, the character and comprehensiveness of of the collection of books from the beginning of printing to the 1970s was essentially fixed already and uh, one can't change that fundamentally. So um, the most important things that have happened since uh, the British Library. First, the, the first thing that happened as it happens didn't affect the Department of Printed Books very much, but it's worth mentioning just for uh, uh, as, as a general point because it does have some significance. I described the National Lending Library for Science and Technology and the National Central Library, both in their very different ways responsible for interlibrary loan. Well, these two were united together almost in the first year of the British Library 
the National Central Library uh, disappeared as an entity in London and became part of the National Lending Library, thus forcing the National Lending Library for the first time to have those funny things called catalogues because they inherited, of course, the Union Catalogue of the National Central Library. The, uh, there has been some coordination of the two sides of interlending, but I think it's become clear to everybody that interlending of humanities material, which retains its interest in age much longer than scientific material, and needs more careful bibliographic description is not the same as lending or sending a photocopy of some article in a chemical journal published a few months ago so that uh, there is now this dual system at the National Lending Library whereby some things are included in the union catalogue which also includes the division's own stock and some things are not so that's that was the first important development and the lending library until very recently has gone from strength to strength with its uh, uh, scale of activity going up by leaps and bounds they've now reached something of a uh, plateau I think uh, for a variety of reasons one is simply the recession which has slowed the growth of requests for interlibrary loan the expense of providing interlibrary loans has uh, gone up and up every time the postage rate goes up um, they had to put the price of interlibrary loan up and this is having a deterrent effect Nevertheless, it's still a, an extremely large operation, employing about six or seven hundred out of the two thousand British Library employees up at Boston Spa, and providing the largest customer for the post office in the whole region. Um, so that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened that was important happened much nearer home because it was the end, no, that's not right, not the end, but the changing of the character of the general catalogue of printed books. Uh, I mentioned earlier GK 1, 2, 3 and 4, with 4 being recent and therefore out of chronological sequence. Nevertheless, uh, you'll appreciate that GK 3 was about 10 years old when the British Library was founded and the department had run into increasing difficulties not so much of cataloguing but of catalogue maintenance uh, you remember the those of you who've used the reading room will know the guard book catalogue in about 2000 volumes well the labour for keeping this up just wasn't there and it was an extremely time-consuming thing and uh, there were chronic backlogs of records which had been catalogued, uh, which had been prepared and printed but which weren't in the, in the volumes available to the public. 
So there, it was essential to find some new way of dealing with accessions to the library. And uh, given that this discussion all took place in the mid-70s, it was clear that there was no future in continuing the non-standard catalogue, which, as I mentioned earlier, predated AACR and therefore was out of tune with all the um, views of the most uh, respected library authorities. There was also this pressure, indeed irresistible pressure, not to waste money by cataloguing about 30 or 40,000 books twice in the, within the national system, once for the BNB using AACR and once for the British Museum catalogue using the pre-AACR British Museum cataloguing rules. So there was this irresistible pressure to stop and uh, there was only one solution really and that was to start a new catalogue based on Mark and AACR which, which were obviously by the mid-70s going to be the internationally accepted standards. So, we, in 1975, we started a new catalogue in machine-readable form for current material. Uh, unlike some other libraries, which simply froze their catalogue of early books, and if they happened to acquire a book published in 1650, they just added it to their newest catalogue, we decided that it was so important that our users should have an integrated record of the earlier collection that we decided to keep the general catalogue alive. And so we now have two live catalogues, about 85% of items being current, of course, go into the machine-readable catalogue, and about 15% representing our continuing accessions of non-current book, books to which we attach much importance, going, still going into the old catalogue, though, of course, the level of activity is very much reduced. The, uh, the current catalogue, the machine-based catalogue, um, has now reached some 300-odd thousand records, half of which come from the BNB and represent the copyright, copyright British books, and the other half represent records generated by ourselves for overseas and foreign language material. And we, just to complete the story, we have three outputs from the library machine file every two months. One, a name, author, title catalogue. Secondly, a subject catalogue. And thirdly, those two are on fiche. Thirdly, a line printer output um, in shelf mark order, which is useful for housekeeping purposes. So, that we now have two catalogues 
one of which is the well-known general catalogue which of course still contains over 90% of the collection and represents 90% of the use but also this small new catalogue representing accessions of the last six or seven years currently dated so that's where we stand and we have a new catalogue but uh, all along we have wanted of course to convert the general catalogue the old catalogue to machine readable form and with luck we may be on the point of doing just that um, there is a system called the Graphics One which is an optical scanning system developed by a firm in California uh, co known colloquially as the Three Eyes which I believe stands for Information International Incorporated I may have got the order wrong there anyway we have one example of these machines in Britain which we're hoping to have the use of uh, by using the term optical scanning I think it's obvious uh, uh, what the basic principle is and we're taking advantage of the fact that generally speaking the use of a particular fount of type in the catalogue has a particular meaning this means that we can read through the catalogue from A to Z and then format it to some extent automatically and then finally using human beings uh, to produce what we might call pseudo mark records they won't be real ones because of course the catalogue wasn't compiled according to AACR and lacks the principle of the unit entry nevertheless computers being stupid uh, they can be persuaded that a record is a marked record even if it isn't provided it has some of the essential characters so we propose to read through the catalogue and uh, as part of a very long term project um, have the older records in machine readable form as well as the newer ones this is particularly important not just because of the extra um, uh, adaptability which this gives but also for the more practical reason that in the new library building which will be much larger than the present one multiple copies of the catalogue will be needed and uh, it seems that this is the conversion to machine readable form of the general catalogue should make this possible so that's, uh, that's the two sides of what is happening to the catalogue there's the new AACR mark catalogue of new books and the general catalogue in its original form but which we are hoping to convert to machine readable form now on the subject of catalogues I think one other project must be mentioned 
and that is the 18th century short title catalogue ESTC which some of you may have been involved in already uh, I needn't uh, if I say wing and STC I'm sure those terms are entirely familiar to you and the project the ESTC project was essentially to do for the 18th century what STC and wing did for earlier centuries we realised of course before we started that the number of actual items would be uh, many times greater but uh, when it started it was intended that the scheme should be broadly similar and have a broadly similar end product uh, being the 18th century of course we now had to say English language books because by the 18th century books were being published in English uh, in America India and many other places and uh, this meant that it really had to be an international project to be really comprehensive so moves were put on moves were uh, uh, made to establish a North American center which would collect information about the 18th century English language holdings here and as probably you're familiar with what's going on I'll just mention them briefly in order to put them in context as, you, as I'm sure you know there are two American centers in fact there's one at um, Worcester where the American Antiquarian Society is concerned with the records and holdings of books published in North America and the much larger center is currently at Baton Rouge um, it's there because the chief mover on the American side Henry Snyder has a post at Louisiana State University um, it may move elsewhere of course but uh, this is the center whose job it is to collect uh, information about British books in American libraries story short funding was sought for the North American side of the enterprise and uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, promised some money but only on condition that the data should be made available through one of the American networks and they had in mind OCLC or one of the smaller or newer networks so the upshot was that pressure from North America together with a little pressure within Britain has resulted in the records which to begin with were in purely manual form being encoded in machine readable form and uh, there is a complicated mechanism being set up whereby the files of records in Britain and in America are being kept in step recently it was decided that Arlen was the most uh, suitable network for this file 
and I understand that the file which of course is still imperfect but growing all the time is likely to be available on Arlen within a matter of some months so that was the ESDC another development which is more recent uh, but which may interest this particular audience is the setting up of the American Trust for the British Library uh, Douglas Bryant the former librarian at Harvard is the executive director and the main objective of the American Trust is to collect funds to improve the library's collection of Americana I mentioned Henry Stevens very early on and his enthusiasm which led to the 19th century collection being uh, being very good but after his uh, disappearance from the scene there was no enthusiast to continue the work and the, Ameri the collection of American books is really a good deal less good than it ought to be for the period between say 1880 and 1950 when the more generous funding after World War II and a greater appreciation of the importance of American scholarship and United States studies began to put things right so the American Trust as I say is collecting funds and giving advice to the British Library on how to improve its and enhance its collection of Americana for that critical period um, I mentioned the machine readable catalogue um, this is only one part of a catalogue system which goes by the acronym BLAZE British Library Automated Information Service which was started three or four years ago as a kind of um, combined information retrieval service and cataloguing service it produces the fish catalogues which I mentioned earlier it's also an online technical information service and it was set up by simply buying off the peg if you have that phrase in other words buying as it stood ready-made the Earl Hill software of the National Library of Medicine which has subsequently been developed into a local British version but nevertheless Earl Hill is at its base um, lastly and most important of all we received last late last year permission to let the first contracts for the new building I, I mentioned the 1962 project which was across the road at Great Russell Street uh, I didn't mention that uh, one of the decisions in the 70s was not to use that site but to use another one about three quarters of a mile north of where the museum now stands in Euston Road those of you who know London may know St Pancras Station 
and it's next door to that on what at present is a vacant lot so that uh, um, isn't that site is now dedicated for library use and I think in retrospect it's a good thing that the library is being built there and not opposite the British Museum the site opposite the British Museum was only seven acres and because it constituted an entire block uh, with roads all around it once built it would have been impossible to extend the library the present site contains nine and a half acres with a few more acres at the back for future extension the first phase of the building will unfortunately actually mean a worse service for users than they have now because the first phase or well put it this way the building has to be started in the context of how it will finish and you can't build a building from the top downwards you have to build it from the bottom upwards and therefore the first thing to do is to build a large hole and this is going to cost you an awful lot of money and you'll have nothing to show for it very much so the very first phase will result in availability of a reading room of only 316 people though when we get on to the second phase which is mostly above ground that figure rapidly increases but when you think that the present reading room contains 400 seats and that if you add on the North Library and all the supplementary reading rooms like manuscripts and so on the total is about 850 you'll see that 316 isn't very much so what we've decided and this is uh, perhaps slightly arrogant in the sense that it'll be other people, our successors who have the uh, trouble of administering it because the new building isn't going to be available till 1989 by which time the present generation of keepers and so on will have disappeared but nevertheless it became necessary to take a decision and for a variety of reasons it was decided that the first part of the new building would be for what we call for want of a better term the rare book collections in other words those categories which are now seen in the North Library together with such other collections as we can identify which are mo the most used in conjunction with the, rare, with the North Library categories this means that uh, there will be a split service which uh, is bound to be uncomfortable and we hope that uh, it will be obvious to the powers that be that having begun the new building it will be it would make sense to carry straight on and build the following phases but which would make it possible to move virtually all the library services because as I explained you have to dig the hole first and the, it, the, all the book stacks are going to be in underground 
the reading rooms are all above ground uh, so that as we move out of the phase of digging the hole and putting in the book stack we rapidly begin to get advantages above ground in the shape of extra reading rooms and the whole project uh, will eventually mean over 2,000 reader seats compared with about 800 at the moment well that briefly is where we stand as you see more things in some ways more things have happened to the department of printed books in the six now uh, eight years since the British Library came into being than in the previous hundred uh, though without uh, in any way denigrating the great efforts of our predecessors and uh, we now operate in an entirely different environment which probably requires us to express our identity in different ways and uh, one of the reasons why I've come here is to talk to people and find out how they see the research libraries of this country which have large collections of so-called rare books in other words early books well I hope that that's given you an idea of the environment in which we used to work and the environment in which we know work which uh, as you see is somewhat different and of course yeah, as is customary with lectures of this kind I'll be glad to answer questions thank you